On this episode of Business Interrupted. You should be identifying some quick wins that you can take. There's parts of the organization that are more susceptible to disruption than others, or historically they may have been the reason why you got called in to start this program. So go there. Don't just do a blanket BIA. Start there and get that done. Get a plan done. Get an exercise done. And if you can do that in the first six weeks to the first you know, month or two, man, that's an amazing victory that you got on base. And now you have a, a case example of an accomplishment. And, and that to me is, is far more important than trying to set up the perfect program. Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellan Solutions, we're learning from the world's best leaders, so you can be ready for whatever comes next. I'm your host, Cheyenne Marling. Imagine this, you've been brought in to fix a problem, but the existing business continuity plan is well past its expiration date. You're excited to do refresh and create something new, but things don't move as quickly as you'd like. You're not getting traction with the stakeholders. The temptation is to try and hit the home run right out of the gate, but that could leave you stuck waiting for everything to line up. For our guest, the key to success is to get on base and find those small, quick wins that will move things forward. Shane Matthew is a senior manager of business resilience at Zoom. Throughout his impressive career, he started and matured multiple programs that successfully reduced the impact of crises. In this episode, Shane joins me to discuss the keys to making your continuity program sticky. Along the way, he'll share the three most important things to consider when building up your organization's resilience. But first, let's get Shane's thoughts on the biggest mistakes he's seen people make when designing new programs. Take a listen. I've worked at several companies in one in particular, I was brought in because they had been you know, experiencing tremendous growth. They had a few disruptions. And so they, they came to the conclusion with some outside help, some consulting help recommended, build a business continuity program. And the, the way the organization was built, they did not have that expertise in-house. So they hired me to, to come on board and start this program. And this this organization had, uh, you know, customer support type of uh, activities. They had pharmacy operations. They had dispensing activities. So there was a gambit of, of work to be done. So this was like a really cool challenge for me in that it wasn't just one type of, you know, it wasn't just one product that was going out the door. There was multiple aspects to what we were doing. I started to build a program. I, I got a software tool. I started designing a BIA. I, I did the interviews. I got some consulting help to help me because it was a per, you know a team of one. So I, I basically did everything that you would imagine is in the traditional roadmap of a business continuity program starting out, right? And I and I was checking the boxes, going down the list. I got to get this. Got to get that. And and so the unfortunate problem is that that business, as the business was also growing there was some headwinds that hit the company and so much so that leadership, especially the leadership that brought me in, began to see a turnover. And then my uh, direct leader who hired me 
you know, ended up going to a different organization. So now there was some layoffs and there was some reorgs. And now my role, which was once kind of top of mind amongst executive team and and this activity was, you know, the, the events, the disruptions I, I refer to, which occurred, you know, maybe a, a year and a half before, now they're becoming a distant memory. <laughs> and so, you know, eventually my role got moved around and I had to I had to take on responsibilities that are nowhere near my job description. I was working on projects, again, to help the business, but nothing related to business continuity. And so much so that I, you know, eventually I was like, you know what, this is not going to work out in the long run for me. And so I decided to to move on. Now, I brought this story to bear because this was the situation. This was the point in my career where, you know, prior to that, building a BC program was pretty much standard, check the box, run down the list, get it done and knock it out. Right. But it started to make me realize I was like, how many legacy business continuity programs are there in the world? I was like, how many programs have been around for for 10 to 15 years? And as I was growing in my experience, I realized there's not many. You know, in, in fact, I, I would say BC programs are kind of like a banana. There's a shelf life before it, it's rotten and it needs to be thrown away or redone or you buy a new banana. Okay, <laughs> I know this is a, it's a weird example, but... For me, it made sense is that there's a shelf life for these programs and there's a lot of levers that if they're not pulled, if they're not done correctly, you could quickly see, you know, your program's thrown out with the trash the next day and you're just, you're just caught off guard. So I think that was like the most impactful to me because from that point forward, I started to really design programs and think about designing programs that were going to stand the test of time. So I think that's where I would say it was the most impactful moment in my career was really kind of have to fail pretty hard and move from there. Going through that process, what advice would you give to someone else who's had to encounter that or even someone that's new to the industry, not even knowing that could happen? I think the number one takeaway has been that Again, there's no such thing. Well, there's very few legacy programs, right? So if you think you're kind of come in and do something dramatically, you're going to do something different. You have to kind of check yourself and assume that somebody's already done what you're planning to do. Again, if you follow, you know, traditional BCM techniques, there is a lot of similarity and people have done it, right? That's one thing. So I've kind of come up with a couple of lessons I've I've been applying at programs, especially when I was working in consulting, I was learning, you know, from these various clients, you know, many of them had programs in the past, like you said, Cheyenne, they, they died off, they restarted. And so I kind of came up with this term in my head, I call it the resilience program reboot cycle, right? So there's always like a, a, a continuum of activity that happens. And, and as you described it, you know, there may be gaps of weeks, months, years, in some cases, and then an emergency happens or a uh, regulatory body says you got to do it. And then all of a sudden it starts back up again, right? So there's a couple of rules I follow, but the, the one I take away the most is when you're starting a BCM program, you have to use a baseball analogy here, but you know, don't wait for the perfect pitch or, hey, just get on base. And so, so when I say that, what I mean is a lot of times as professionals, and I did this, right, we're 
when you're building the initial program, you're trying to get all the tools ready and set up. And you're trying to complete everything in the order of operations that we have been taught from the first time we entered you know, a certification course or, or a presentation on this, which is you know, get your software tool up and running. If you need one, get one up and running. Even if you don't need one, people are buying software tools just to, just to build it, right? So I like to look at it as a timeline, okay? The day you got hired, you, you, you have a few weeks of, you know, getting out of the organization. You might start building out your tool sets and identifying, you know, where are you going to do your BIA? You build your BIA tool, you, you, you get your, your, your first BIA started, you eventually get all the business done of BIAs. And, and depending on how big your organization, but that could be months or weeks. Sometimes I've heard of some organizations take like a year to just run through and do every single work unit. And that's, that's even before you actually build plans, right? So you get through the BIA, then you start building plans. So that runway is so long that it's just like by the time you produce some tangible result, you know, it's so far past when you started. So that was one of my biggest takeaways is like, you got to win fast. So don't worry about everything being perfect. Don't try to make sure that you get every single BIA done before you move to the next phase. So one of the things I do now is I really focus on, hey, if we need to do some of the regulatory requirements, like build a standard or a document, uh, a policy. Yeah, do that, right? But in parallel, you should be identifying some quick wins that you can take. And generally, the way I look at it is like, there's parts of the organization that are more susceptible to disruption than others, or historically, they may have been the reason why you got called in to start this program. So go there, you know, don't, don't just do a blanket BIA, start there and get that done, get a plan done, get an exercise done. And if you can do that in the first six weeks to the first you know, month or two, man, that's an amazing victory that you got on base. And now you have a, a case example of an accomplishment. And, and that to me is, is far more important than trying to set up the perfect program, which I think we, we tend to do. And, and, and while we, it's a great ideal, it's just not feasible when you think about that reboot cycle. Just, just remember the clock starts on day one and each day that passes is one day further away from the historical event that started your career there or the regulation or the consulting uh, recommendation. It's just more and more days pile up and people's memories are real short. So don't try to hit home runs in the first, first inning. I think it, it can be as simple as you know, a plan, a tabletop. I mean, in, and oftentimes I tend to start out programs with tabletops because you can easily demonstrate the value of this type of planning when you put these scenarios in front of people's eyes. But then also it's it's something to at least get a baseline and start moving forward. So so that's like that's like a big one for me. There was two other ones. There was one was making business continuity fun. <laughs> and I know that's kind of an a weird way to say it because some of you may, you know, listening may think, oh, well, of course I make business continuity fun, but, or, or you may be thinking, how can you do that? <laughs> so, I mean, because it's traditionally like risk management, right? You're, it can be dry. People don't want to think about risk. So when you show up and you say, Hey, we're going to do a hour or two hour long interview, or you're going to fill out this questionnaire online, you know, people are just, 
they don't want to do it, right? So I I saw that in one in in one role when I came to them for the second BIA. Like, we did the first one, and I came back the next year, and they like groaned. <laughs> I was like, I I don't want to ever hear that again. When they say Shane coming, they they should be interested at the minimum, if not like, okay, cool, it's time for us to go through some tabletops again. You know, like that's the engagement. So how I do BC making it fun? Well, a couple of ways. One is that. I, I try to incorporate games, right? And, I, and I've talked about this in, in presentations and on my podcast before. Is like gamification is so impressively important. It can draw people in so quickly. We built this one game for risk identification where we, we built a battleship board. <laughs> and basically, we created little ships representing different product lines. And for each product line, there was, on, you know, you, you know, you put little pegs in the in the ship and that it sunk, right? But in our case, the pegs were technology, personnel, uh, you know, applications or facilities, and those dependencies were mapped on these little ships. So some product lines required all of those things, and other product lines maybe just required one or two, right? So when we talk about that with this group context, people started to engage far more than if I just said, "Hey." Let's start listing out your risk points. So that type of gaming or doing it in a workshop setting where you're collecting data with similar groups, it really, like we play this one game called Attackers and Defenders, where basically you you pick two groups in the party and say, your job is to bring down the company's product line. And the other team is, their job is to defend the company's product line. So they're supposed to come up with ways to destroy or or break or, or or bring down that activity and while the other team is coming up with defense right so again just another competitive way to engage these audiences and and one in fact i had one, with that game i described with the uh, battleship and you know i literally had our facilities director come up to me a few weeks later and it's like hey when are we going to play that game again <laughs> you know so I thought that was like a very defining moment for me because I don't think I've ever had anybody come up to me and say, hey, when are we going to do BC activities anymore, Shane? I'm I'm excited for the next one. So there's all sorts of techniques out there, but it's important for you to adopt that mentality that I don't want people to think this is boring. This is This has a need because I guarantee you, if you get to that point in your leadership's decision-making where they're saying, should we keep business continuity or not? The good feelings are what are going to keep your program. I mean, I know it sounds really superficial, but oftentimes it can come down to that. Yeah, there's some value in this program, you know, and, and that's based on their experience in the program. And I think you said you had a third one too, right? Yeah. You know, we tend to think about big mitigation strategies, or we're going to move our whole facility or build a backup site somewhere. And I found that in that example in my career where things really went well was when I was finding simple fixes. And and I've used this term before in other contexts of the risk nugget. Okay. So basically I, I define that as, as you're uncovering big picture risks or, or, or doing BIAs, you find little pieces little simple fixes that can really go a long way. And it doesn't cost a lot of money. I'll give you an example. We had a production environment with a manufacturing belt and you know, 15,000 orders would go out a day, right? So you can understand that if that conveyor belt system went down, 
that we would have immense problems getting orders out the door, right? By cutoffs of mail and all that sort of stuff. So when we were doing some digging about this, we were talking about this topic. Oh, the conveyor belt goes down as the risk. Well, we started to dig deeper and found out that our maintenance contract involved a four-hour turnaround. The, the maintenance man we had on contract was based in another state and would have to drive there. And then we were like, well, what's the most likely problems that they've had to fix? And they're like an air compressor. Well, can we just buy an air compressor and put it over here and just connect it if we have to, you know, like replace it right away? I mean, it was like an $800 investment at that time, but it was an amazing solution. We we didn't have to think about, well, how are we going to reprogram all our orders to go to our other site? How are we going to you know, make sure personnel are there to handle the extra workload? All those mitigations could stop just simply by saying, hey, let's have a strategy around replacing this one piece of equipment. And so again, simple fixes, right? We, we didn't have to go to executive management and say, I need a whole new facility ready to go, or I need to add personnel costs for elongating our hours and overtime. The reality is 30 minute downtime, I got a plug and play air compressor. That's going to fix everything for 800 bucks. That sort of solution was going to be approved all day, every day. And, and so that's what I'm saying. We, we tend to think we need the big solutions. And, and in fact, if you do a little digging, you can oftentimes find it's it's small little things like this that can really go a long way. So in using these three things, how do you go above and beyond to really make it sticky? Like what does sticky mean to you when you think about business continuity resiliency planning? And how do you try to capture that approach or keep the program sticky in addition to these three things? The way I look at stickiness is if Shane is not there, does this continue in the same way? Is the vision that I bring or the vision I work on with my team together, you know, sufficient enough and, and bought off by our immediate team that it continues long after I move? Because people come and go, right? So I think that's a key thing is that it cannot be just a, you know, let's follow a cookie cutter approach and just hope that all these other pieces fall into play. I mean, I, I see myself not only as you know doing the work of business continuity when I'm on a team, but also, you know, really evangelizing this concept, you know, around the organization. And that does take time depending on the organization, right? Some organizations, they're really ripe and ready for that sort of getting it embedded in different areas. And, and that's, I think the stickiness also will depend on how much you get the investment from team members across the org. One concept I try to use is the centers of resiliency where you, you identify points in the company that are really homogeneous around their resiliency, you know, like your customer support entities or, or if you're in a manufacturing, all the, you know, the, the production areas. These are kind of similarly located areas where you, you know, if you can get their leaders to not only one, understand the concept, but accept ownership of it, that is ultimately the key. A friend of mine, Scott Baldwin, you may have heard of or talked to He's at Netflix right now. Baldwin and I have these discussions and, and he, he kind of gave me these, these contexts and I've, I've used them now, which is basically put the ownership on, on business units, right? So in your standard, in my standard standards that I write, I make sure that the department leader is the one responsible for their BC program, not me. Because even if I leave or this program goes away, that department owner still needs to be responsible for ensuring business resiliency or business continuity practices are taking place. 
So I think, again, ownership is one thing. It can't just be about you you as a program leader. You have to develop your, your systems, your programs, your activities with the site that if you're not here, would this continue on? Would this activity further without your help? And I think that's, that's the way to look at it if you want to maintain or in, ensure stickiness. I love it. And your approach, your methodology, I think is incredible. Now I'm talking to another podcaster because you also have your own podcast as well, the Fail Over Plan podcast. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I started in July of 2020 because I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> so I thought, you know, let, let me use some of the you know, skills I have in media and try to, to build something else. And it shows failover because, you know, again, like I mentioned, my my time in that one organization where if you look at it holistically, externally, you could say, oh, well, man, Shane failed. Shane failed. And I agree with that. I, I agree. I don't think the program really lasted the test of time. And so from that experience, it really built a lot of who I am today. And so that podcast that I designed and taking a little break and I'm going to start back up again. But the point is that podcast's is, focus is on finding those leaders who have went through the same thing. What, what did they learn from failures that could really be applicable and helpful to the BC practitioners of today? Excellent. So tell me if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, how can they find you? How can they reach out to you? I welcome, you know, anyone on LinkedIn to communicate with me. I'm pretty active there. I love talking to uh, individuals, especially if you've learned lessons that you want to share with me. I would absolutely love to hear from you. So yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to get hold. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Cheyenne Marley for this leader's episode. To get more insights and resources, check out the show notes or head over to castellanbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.